Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four-day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Asian coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet, an event produced by Athena Advisors and Capital Partners. In everyday in life, we tend to associate compassion with just not reacting strongly, you know, just letting it go. And which is true, but compassion does not mean that you should not be firm. What compassion does mean is to not to respond to the person in a negative way. You know, while you are responding, don't forget the humanity of the other person. So someone who's being horrible Even if to they you, forget yours. Yeah, that's true. I actually, and you stand, you have an advantage if you don't forget the other person's humanity because even someone who is very nasty towards you, then there is this understanding that strong emotion, negative emotions is an expression of pain. So just being able to recognize that will make a big difference because in the end, when you are able to maintain your compassion, and awareness of the humanity of the other person, you are able to respond to the situation with much more clarity. I am Rose, a French journalist based in Barcelona. And this episode is an interview made in Kaplankaya with Dr. Thopten Jimpa, the main translator of the Dalai Lama, a Tibetan Buddhist scholar and author with an extraordinary story. Son of a farmer born in Tibet, His journey took him from traditional monastic education in India to the modern academic sphere with a PhD in religious studies from Cambridge University. He is now a former monk with a wife and two daughters and the founder of the Compassion Institute. Hello, Jimpa. Hello, Ross. You're a very uh, busy man, so thank you for uh, being with us and taking the time to do this uh, podcast for a uh, Harvest series. Thank you. It's it's a pleasure and an honor, and uh, what a beautiful place. Yes, it <laughs> is. <laughs> On the Aegean coastline, yeah. You met the Dalai Lama. You had met him before, but you were six years old, uh, more or less. You were uh, a little boy in India in a school of uh, refugees because your parents had to leave Tibet for the, following the Dalai Lama's escape when the Chinese arrived. What did you tell him at the time when you were a little boy? So this was, I still remember it, you know, quite vividly. Um, This was a, a school for the Tibetan uh, refugee children in Shimla in a, quite a beautiful kind of hill station. The reason why I remember it today, even today, is because it was a big thing for the school. So we were, you know, the school was being prepared for days and, uh, you know, many of us children, we had to learn how to dance and sing. And so, and it was all being decorated. So it was a big deal. And, you know, the day the, on the morning of his arrival, there were so many police security people who came and... Um, And I remember playing marbles with some of them. So on the day he arrived, it was very, very magical because there were traditional Tibetan incense burning with plumes of, you know, smoke coming around and everybody was dressed in their best. And fortunately, I had been chosen to be one of the children, a boy and a girl, to, you know, walk beside him after, you know, he was ceremonially received. Um, so um, although I don't remember myself doing it, but... Teachers told me later that uh, when I was walking with him, I asked him a question if I could become a monk, you know, <laughs> so there was, uh, so clearly there was some karma. And looking back, probably the reason why I asked that question 
probably had to do with the fact that among all the teachers at that Tibetan children's village, um, there were two monastic teachers, monk teachers, who looked really serene and joyful, and they were also the kindest. So that must have left a very strong impression on me, because among all the adults who were there, these were the two monks were the ones that were most impressive. So probably I just wanted to be like them, you know, (laughs) six-year-old. Apparently I asked him a question and he said, well, if you study hard and study well, you can become monk anytime. So that was the (laughs) response he gave, yeah. (laughs) But the other child um, who was walking with uh, him apparently asked him, you know, when will Tibet become free? So he was probably thinking more bigger way. I was thinking just about myself. You mentioned that uh, you wanted to give a voice uh, to people back home. Is it what drives you? Well, in my own work, um, you know, one of the key things that I do is, you know, given my own academic background in classical um, Tibetan Buddhist training, and now with the Cambridge education, one of the areas where I can be most effective is in the preservation of the culture and, you know, kind of revitalization and modernization uh, so that the the intellectual, textual, and and the philosophical culture remains alive. So I do a lot of um, re-editing, of reformatting of the key classical texts so that they are much more user-friendly. And I write introductory essays to these volumes so that the students and scholars can use them in a much more efficient way. So it's I'm trying to do a lot of things that can really help the younger generation, the new, newer generation, to be able to continue to maintain the knowledge of these key texts and and the living traditions that are part of it. So that's, um, and, you know, of course, there are, we have the Central Tibetan Administration in India, which is our government in exile, which will do all that political lobbying. And we have various Students for Free Tibet movements and, you know, Tibet support groups across the world. So they are the ones who are going to be doing the more politically oriented kind of lobbying and, you know, advocacy work. But my own work is primarily aimed at um, kind of, you know, preserving intellectual and cultural literary traditions. Yeah. You're also very interested in the science. How do you navigate between Buddhism and science? Well, my interest in science really came primarily because of the Dalai Lama's interest. You know, when I was young in India studying in the monastery, I was more interested in on the Western side literature and psychology. I wasn't that keen on, and philosophy, but not keen on science. But His Holiness has been very keen on science from a very young age. And um, once I became his translator, I realized that a large part of his work is actually conversations with scientists. So I had a big learning curve to catch up with my own science education. And then, of course, I began way, way more interested. But Buddhism and science, one interesting thing is that... Um, kind of, you know, conceptual and philosophical level, Buddhism and science are actually quite close. Okay, because usually religion and science I are know, not the best I friends know. in the world. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. I mean, especially the history of religion and science in the West yeah. is not a happy one. It's quite tricky. When, when it comes to Buddhism, you know, first of all, for example, uh, science ultimately is materialistic philosophy, you know, because science wants to explain everything based on matter. And the, one of the key, you know, kind of foundational principles in science is the theory of causality. Everything needs to be explained by relationship and cause and effects. Same thing for Buddhism. And science cannot invoke a higher force like God or a creator. Everything has to have a natural explanation. Buddhism is the same. 
Buddhism has no place for creation. There's no concept of God. Fundamental principle in Buddhism is the law of causality. And all explanation, ultimate explanations of evolution of the cosmos, human life, sentient creature, everything has to be based on a natural explanation, a bit like science. So at the philosophical level, there is not much conflict. So it's very easy. And similarly, you know, Buddhism does not believe in an eternal self, like a soul. That's also what makes it very easy to communicate with scientists whose explanation of human experience is primarily from neurobiology and psychology. So there are very, very few stumbling blocks. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Now, where there is a big difference is when it comes to the nature of consciousness, because science wants to explain ult everything ultimately on the basis of material phenomenon. Our conscious experience, our mind, our thoughts, our dreams, our emotions, from the scientific point of view, ultimately is a function of brain, is an mm -hmm. expression of brain. So these experiences that we feel to be real are biochemical expressions of the brain. This is where Buddhism is very different. Buddhism believes ultimately consciousness is not material. It's immaterial. And so the, the, when it comes to the nature of consciousness, science and Buddhism is very different. But even in science, the ultimate explanation being material is an assumption. It's not really proven. So you will find among scientists who may actually believe, like the Buddhists, you know, that consciousness is is a fundamental reality. So, uh, and, and because of this difference in Buddhism, there is a belief in reincarnation, rebirth. This is not the only life. Life goes on. The body ceases, but consciousness continues. So this is one area where science and Buddhism will actually part company. Yes. Okay. But otherwise, um, you know, there's a lot of synergy. And uh, and one of the things that the, the Isolanes' is main interest is not so much that he wants science and Buddhism to merge, but he's interested in science because science has a way more detailed explanation of the natural world. You know, Buddhism may believe in a natural explanation, but when it comes to the evolution of life, for example, science has a whole beautiful story of the Darwinian theory of evolution, of selection, natural selection, and all of this, and brings a lot more detail. Similarly, when it comes to physics or, or cosmos, science has a lot more details about the you know, fundamental elements of matter, you know, quarks and particles and the natural forces that bring them together. So there, I think Buddhism can learn a lot. But when it comes to psychology and human experience, I think science is quite weak because, you know, science is built on a material paradigm. So now, of course, science is moving in, in the area of consciousness, but there is a lot more richness in Buddhism because, for example, many of the mind training techniques like mindfulness, you know, loving kindness and compassion and attention, all of these are very, very richly explained in Buddhist psychology. And this is one area where Buddhism can enrich science. So the dialogue is beneficial to both sides, you know. You've worked with um, one of uh, our beloved uh, speakers, Gabor Maté, who's a scientist yes, also. Yes. He's uh, also working about compassion. Yes. And uh, you work together, so him as a scientist and yes. you as a, um, a Buddhist and a scholar and sure. uh, about compassion. In which way are you different and uh, do you complete each other? 
you learn from each other? Well, I think, you know, Gabon is connected with the Mind Alive work in Europe and Mind Alive um, International is, is in, New, in, the, in the US. This is where I'm the chair. I mean, one of the things that, um, you know, these, these dialogues that that's happens between Buddhism and science uh, is a very interesting one because it's happening in a space that is secular. The image here is science and Buddhism occupying same level. Dr. Thupten Jimpa founded the Compassion Institute in 2009. He developed with a team of experts an eight weeks program based on compassion around two hours a week with a program called CCT, Compassion Cultivating Training, widely studied and used targeting also specific professions like law enforcement. To the initiative of one member of the police who's been trained, a program has been launched in the United States called Courageous Heart, aiming at the well-being of the policemen, mostly in California, helping them to connect to their own emotions, learn to self-calm through breathing, and learn basic self-compassion. What's the data about compassion and mindfulness? Well, I mean, there is now quite a lot of uh, data. I mean, up until now, uh, the scientific data is um, based primarily on pre and post training. But now the, the science has matured enough to be able to look at mechanism. How is mindfulness working? And also now mindfulness-based techniques are also being adapted to specific purposes. For example, like people are trying it out on dealing with uh, PTSD, Uh, especially among vet- veterans, you know. And then people are also trying it out to see if it, it, ha- it can help with the addiction problem. Mm-hmm. And then increasingly compassion-based, you know, practices are also being used. Now the the the, the research is getting way more uh, sophisticated and, um, and millions of federal U.S. government dollars are being spent on studying this because, you know, and a lot of this funding is coming from National Endowment of Health, you know, National Health. NIH, National Institute of Health funding. So it's a federal government funding because there is this understanding that if some of these techniques, mind-based techniques can help in the process of healing, the good thing is there is very little side effects. Whereas if you rely primarily on pharmacology like drugs, then there's always going to be side effects, you know. And also drugs-based approach is way more expensive. Whereas, sure. you know, like mind-based approaches are less expensive, you know. Yeah, yeah. And do you think like um, mindfulness is a um, word that is more approachable for the Western than compassion? Yeah, they are very different though, because mindfulness is primarily a function of um, awareness and attention and learning to settle your mind and detach and don't get dragged into a rumination. So it's learning to apply meta-awareness, learning to be with difficult experience without judgment, uh, learning to be in the present, you know, in a particular way. And so it's a primarily uh, exercising of attention and awareness. Compassion is quite different. Compassion is primarily a relational quality. And it's also in mindfulness practice, you deliberately don't evoke emotions. Whereas in compassionate practice, you evoke emotions. So it's a, it's a much more effect or emotion-based approach, which is primarily relational. And the compassion-based techniques are also tapping into 
our social nature, because we are social animals, we are social creatures. And, um, you know, studies after studies in happiness shows that one of the most important ingredients for happiness is the you know, social connection, quality of your connection with people in your life. And compassion-based approaches aimed at tapping into that part and nurturing that part so that you feel less lonely, you feel more connected, you feel more empathetic. It operates in a different way. Uh, of course, the term compassion is a bit heavier because, um, you know, mindfulness has less religious connotation. Compassion for many people is connected with the religion. So, in, and also, you know, some kind of morality. So sometimes people get put off because when you hear the word compassion, they think, oh, I'm, I'm being told not to be selfish, you know. So the people jump into morality. But one of the beautiful things about today is that now science has come into the picture and there is a whole new science of compassion. And now there is a much more natural language around compassion. So you don't need to, you don't need to tie it to religion. This is one of the big things that the Dalai Lama has achieved. You know, one of his main message when he was traveling across the world was to bring the message of compassion to really show that compassion is a fundamental human quality. What would be the technique for a Westerner, a beginner, to start to be more compassionate? What would be the first step? I think probably the first step is to pay attention in your own everyday life to, to recognize where compassion shows up. That I think is because we take it for granted. We, you know, in our everyday life, we leave compassion only as a response. So when there is a, someone suffering, then it gets triggered, but we don't pay attention. So I think paying attention in your life where kindness and compassion shows up, whether from yourself to someone, whether from someone to yourself, that I think is, and then once you pay attention, you recognize the power of that. Because when we pay attention, we will recognize that some of the most deep experiences we will ever have has to do with kindness and compassion. So then, you know, paying attention is probably the first step. And then the second one is to see as much as possible if you can make compassion part of your conscious intention. So when you are interacting with someone, when you are, you know, have a conversation with a difficult person or, you know, when you have to make a decision, I think just checking with your intention and making sure that the compassion is part of that intention. So those are very simple practical things that people can do. Anger, what do you think about anger? Anger is a legitimate sure, emotion. Sure. Uh, if someone abuses you or shouts at you, is unfair, you're angry, how do you transform um, this emotion? Uh, what's the process? I think, I mean, you know, anger as a reaction when you are provoked is very natural human response. You know, there's, and at that point, it's very difficult to switch it off. But I think one thing that would be helpful is once the, the explosion of the anger is over, then don't just move on. Pay attention, reframe that situation so that anger does not linger or turn into a mood. I think this flexibility of emotion is probably a very healthy way because sometimes you get angry and then you get annoyed and then it stays on mm -hmm. and then it destroys your mood. So I think just being able to recognize and pay attention to the and bring awareness to the emotion, that I think is good. But then anger can also bring energy. So, and, and being able to tap into the energy of the anger to then solve the problem is a good one. But 
as much as possible, if you can avoid solving the problem with anger, because when you try to solve the problem immediately with the anger, it doesn't go well because you know, anger also brings blindness. Yeah. You know, so because yes, sure. at that moment, nothing exists. Okay. It's just that, you know, <laughs> but if you can take a step away from anger, then that, with the energy of that anger, you can come up with a good solution. So that's going to be a very Western question, I think, uh, not a Buddhist <laughs> question, but how can you be compassionate without being taken advantage of? That's a really good question. It's an important one because, you know, often in everyday life, we tend to associate compassion with just not reacting strongly, you know, just letting it go. And which is true, but compassion does not mean that you should not be firm. What compassion does mean is to not to respond to the person in a negative way. You know, while you are responding, don't forget the humanity of the other person. So someone who's being horrible Even if to they you, forget yours. Yeah. You have an advantage if you don't forget the other person's humanity. Because even someone who is very nasty towards you, then there is this understanding that strong emotion, negative emotions is an expression of pain. So just being able to recognize that will make a big difference. Because in the end, when you are able to maintain your compassion and awareness of the humanity of the other person, you are able to respond to the situation with much more clarity. Because when anger triggers anger, then, That's you know, a war. It, yeah. <laughs> whereas if you can maintain your composure in order for anger and response and anger and response, that cycle to be broken, someone has to not choose anger. So I think there, someone who takes compassion seriously has an advantage because you can say, okay, you know, so you pay attention and, but this does not mean you let the other person do what they want. Is there a breaking point, like when you did your best, but the person is not uh, listening? Yeah, or sure, sure. I mean, sometimes the, the most compassionate thing may be to avoid the interaction for the time being. Because okay. it's, you know, if the, if the interaction is not constructive, and if it's repeatedly the same way, then initially, I think it's probably the smartest thing is to just avoid. Someone has to not choose anger in relationships. What about the relationships with China then? China considers Tibet to be part of its territory when Tibetans have historically sought independence or autonomy. China has maintained strict control over Tibet since its military takeover in 1950, leading to human rights concerns and the exile of many Tibetans, including the Dalai Lama. In Kaplankaya, Jimpa made a speech about compassion, also evoking the topic and getting some attendees of Harvest thinking. I really enjoyed the talk. I thought it was very broad and wide in his perspective. The one thing that resonated for me is that he said his, his colleagues prefer a gentle approach. And he said that with compassion, he thought This was interesting to me, you know, being a Buddhist, he thought he needed, what works in the world is, is to also be assertive, which was interesting. For me, compassion had a little bit of a, a tint of like gentleness, right? And he said that compassion was not only to be gentle, but to be firm and to 
stand up for ideas or for what we believe. So I think he changed my way of seeing compassion. When we're talking about breaking points and relationship, hard relationship, how do you translate this to the relationship between Tibet and China? Well, that's a tougher one. Um, I think Tibet and China, I mean, it's like David and Goliath. I mean, it's just, you know, the, that's the tragedy of the Tibetan issue because our adversary is just so huge. But where I draw strength and hope is that what we're asking for is very justifiable because under His Holiness the Dalai Lama's leadership, Tibetan freedom movement, majority of the Tibetan community has chose not to campaign for full independence, but campaign for sort of a reasonable autonomy that would ensure the Tibetans are in charge of their own well-being and fate, and to also guarantee us a way to protect our identity as a people, our language and our culture. So in other words, a kind of a meaningful autonomy while being part of the People's Republic of China. And that's a very, very fair thing to ask. It is possible that when a more sane leadership emerges in People's Republic of China, that they may take it more seriously. Because ultimately, it's in the interest of China too. Because you can't have the whole Tibetan plateau as a disputed territory where the legitimacy of China's presence is always going to be questioned. You know, whether Chinese like it or not, Tibetans and Chinese are two completely different people with a long separate history. Our language is different. You know, our culture is different. Up until the 17th, 18th century, you know, Tibetans had hardly anything to do with Chinese intellectual culture. You know, Tibetans always look to the South. You know, Tibetan language is based on the Indian script. You know, Tibetan, uh, you know, adopted Buddhism from India. Many of the high, you know, intellectual traditions like poetics are all based on Sanskrit. So Tibet has a lo lot more in common with the South, Southern neighbor India and Nepal than with its other neighbor China. Even though our population is small, which is about six to seven million on the plateau, But Tibetans are ancient people. History, written history goes all the way back to the 7th century. There is no way that China can swallow it completely. And so if China seriously wants to be taken seriously as a big player on the international stage, it cannot have its own existence questioned. The whole plateau of Tibet, you know, the 99% of the Tibetans still resent the presence of Chinese there. So that's one of the reasons why they have to put so many soldiers, army, on the Tibetan plateau because they, are, they can't trust the Tibetans to give them full, you know, kind of control. So for a major nation like China, not to continue to have something like this, is, which is part of its existential question, is not good for them. His Holiness is kind of advocacy of autonomy rather than independence is a very compassionate perspective because he's taking into account China's concerns of territorial integrity and not having to redraw the international borders. He's taking those into account as well. So I think, I mean, you know, the, on the part of the Tibetans, the most important thing is never to give up. You know, even it may take multiple generations, Tibetans should always assert 
our identity as a separate people with our own language, it doesn't really matter if it takes 100 years. You know, I think that assertion has to be there. Jinpa, you're uh, very connected, of course, uh, with the time you spent with the Dalai Lama. Who is he for you? Is he like a mentor, a guide, a friend? Well, actually, um, technically speaking, he's my boss, okay? <laughs> so, um, but of course, as a Tibetan, and especially having been a former monastic member, uh, for me, he's my guru, my teacher. In the Tibetan tradition, we have this concept of a root guru, root teacher. And also, as a Tibetan, he's a you know, our spiritual leader. And until recently, when he devolved his political authority, he was also a leader of the Tibetan movement and Tibetan people. But for us Tibetans, he's also a human, in you know, manifestation of the Buddha of compassion. It's a very long history of, you know, our relationship with the Dalai Lama goes beyond his person. There's a whole institution. There's a whole mythology. So it's a, it's a relationship is a is a rich one. And for me, he's a mentor too. And having had the, unlike other ordinary monks, I've had the privilege to be with him for a long time, sustained period of time. Especially when working on the books for him, we spent hours and hours sitting down, looking at the manuscript, discussing, debating. But for me, you know, personally, also he has been in, his life has been an amazing teacher. I. When I grew up, um, because I was quite bright as a kid, in my schools and in the monastery, I was always the top in, with respect to academic performance. So I remember being quite arrogant when I was young. <laughs> um, you know, I, even when I was beaten up, bullied by bigger boys, you know, of course I will lose the fight, but then I'll run away and scream and say, but I'm smarter than you. Oh, you know? <laughs> <good>. <laughs> so this being smart has been an important part of my identity. And I remember when I was at the monastery, you know, a rising star has many students. I was quite proud of my achievements. And um, one thing that really shook me was to see humility on the part of his holiness. There was um, a controversy uh, with a little boy, an uh, Indian boy. Can you explain this? Yes, yeah. You're, you're referring to that 20 minute, 20 second kind of video clip yes. that went viral. And it's really unfortunate because uh, it was completely taken out of context. But in fact, the origin of that video uh, from which it was taken is something that not many people know. The video, the original, the longer video was put up on the social media or on the internet by uh, a Tibetan language journalist, a Tibetan journalist who thought he had captured a very beautiful, moving interaction between His Holiness and this young Indian boy. And this was at a public event in Dharamsala at the temple where uh, a group of uh, Indian private school kind of graduates were finishing their graduation ceremony. And as part of that, they wanted to get a blessing from His Holiness And it's run by a non-profit who also does a lot of good charitable work in the local poor community in Dharamsala area. So they've asked for an audience for the younger, the, these graduating students to have a chance to be inspired to interact with His Holiness. So as part of the Indian tradition, I think the, the organizers have brought their younger son as well, who's I think probably 10 or something, 10 or 11. His Holiness was received. When you watch the full video, His Holiness is received, and then there, there is an interaction between the organizers, including their children, and His Holiness. And the boy, you know, His Holiness, boy gives, asks for a hug, and His Holiness gives him a hug. So then they walk, and then inside the temple, when everybody sits down, then again, you know, His Holiness you know, shakes the hands of 
the organizers. And then the boys, their boy hugs his holiness. So then once he finishes the talk and then there is a question and answer period, some people, some students ask questions and he raises his hands and he said, uh, can I have another hug? <laughs> so I think by that time, you know, he had been given hugs. So I think his holiness then, you know, one of the things about his holiness is that his holiness is very spontaneous. And he also has a, a sense of humor. So I think then he called up the boy, gave him a hug, and then said, okay, now you kiss here, kiss here. And then he gave a kind of a short peck on the mouth. And then I think out of teasing, so I said, you know, I think he meant to say, now eat my tongue, which is a Tibetan expression. But he used the word suck my tongue, which was a kind of a humorous interaction. And then, of course, Nothing happens, you know, his holiness sticks out his tongue like Tibetans do, but he pulls it back. Now, this was all captured. And then the Tibetan language, uh, Voice of America journalist who had filmed this, thought this was a beautiful interaction. So he put it up in the Internet, which was unfortunate because he did not think of the potential, you know, cultural yes. miscommunication. You know, because one thing in the Tibetan culture, for example, his holiness is that where in the Tibetan culture, there's no sexual connotation with the tongue as an organ. I mean, it's just, just doesn't okay. occur to the Tibetan. And it's also part of the grandfather's and grandparents' kind of interaction with their grandchildren to say, now eat my tongue, to say, now I've given you everything. Mm -hmm. So, of course, all of this gets lost in translation. And whoever did that 20-second video clip blurring the faces of his holiness and the young boy in that interaction had an agenda. And, and we all know that viral videos are deliberately designed to evoke strong emotions and with a simple storyline. And this was presented as a gotcha moment. You know, we finally caught you kind of thing. But it was, it was a public event. And the video was put up by a Tibetan. But then people started freaking out. And I can understand, you know, why a lot of people would freak out because, it, you know, it is a real concern that many people in high religious authorities abuse children. And that is a fact. So unfortunately, many people who don't know the Dalai Lama thought he's like many other religious authority figures who are abusing children. And that is a really, truly tragic side of that. And His Holiness, of course, when he was informed of you know why people are freaking out. The reason that his phrase that he used could have been misinterpreted, he was sad. You know, he wasn't aware of the sexual connotations of that, that phrase. And how is he going to know this? I mean, he's, he grew up as a monk, his entire life a celibate. He doesn't watch TVs. So, yeah. so, but when he was informed of why people are freaking out, I think he was sad. He understood, but what can you do? I mean, it's just, and I feel the first thing, my own personal reaction was, I was very, you know, because I knew of this video in existence, but it took six weeks before this viral video came up. And when the viral video came up, I knew it has been abused. You know, it was deliberately done. So talking about Hope we're going to end up with the last question of the of this interview, uh, Jimpa. Thank you. It's uh, the harvest of the day. If there is one thing that gives you hope, what is it? I think it's the youth. The youth 
of this generation is very different from all the previous generations and i'm sure one would say one could say the same thing but in this tibet, in tibet in no no i'm talking general, about the world, in yeah. in the world. Um, because the younger generation are way more sensitive to the issues of climate they understand because it's existential for them you know i'm in my 60s i'm 64 by the time the big you know kind of manifestations of climate crisis comes out i'll probably be gone you know <laughs> so, <laughs> but for the younger generation it's real the threat is real they understand it you know viscerally so i think that is there and also the younger generation is now way more enlightened with respect to the biases that has been part of institutional structures in the past you know there are biases you know based on gender based on race based on religion and and the power differentials so the younger generation are way more enlightened and aware of this and also um the younger generation are less materialistic which i think is a good thing because um you know over consumption over materialism and and part of the problem of materialism is the belief that true happiness comes from over consumption that's a flawed belief yeah. you know yes up to a point money and happiness have a relationship but studies after studies show that after a certain point okay. there is no connection at all it's just in your head so i think the over consumption and this belief that matter and material things are going to give you happiness the younger generation seems to be less you know believing in this and for example when they look for jobs they're looking for not so much the highest pay they're looking for a job where there's a meaning there's a value alignment so this is what gives me hope uh, we'll see <laughs> it's too early <laughs> thank you very much jimpa thank, thank you, you so much thank you i hope you enjoyed this episode and dr thapta jimpa story his view on compassion and how not to choose anger even in the conflict with china if you did please leave us a good review and follow us on instagram harvest series all of our podcasts are also filmed so you can also visit youtube.com/harvestseries the next episode will be 5 minutes with dr mark hyman for whom food is medicine we'll discuss the amount of proteins we need in our daily life until next time <laughs>